Welcome. Thanks for listening to the Queer History Podcast. My name is Dylan. And I'm Dakota. And today we're talking about Alan Turing. Alan Turing was a British computer scientist known for his work with code breaking in World War II, artificial intelligence, and the Turing test. He was gay in a time when it was illegal and suffered greatly because of it. Turing's father, Julius Turing, was in the Indian Civil Service helping govern in colonial India, which was under British rule. His mother, Ethel, lived with him in India. When she became pregnant, the family moved back to London, so the children would be raised in Great Britain. Turing was born there in 1912. However, Julius still needed to be in India for his work, so he returned to India, taking Ethel with him and leaving Alan and his brother John with the retired couple. They only had short visits from their parents during their childhood. As soon as his brother and him were old enough, they were sent to boarding school. In 1926, at the age of 13, he started at Sherborne School. It was already apparent that he was interested in mathematics and science. However, his teachers were often irritated that he did so much of his studying and learning on his own, sometimes neglecting their lessons. He did not enjoy team athletics, but was a very good runner, another hobby that would keep him isolated from his peers. Socially, Turing was often isolated. However, when he was 16, he noticed an older boy who shared his interests. His name was Christopher Morcom, and Turing soon fell in love with him. Alan noticed Christopher at his school, but since Christopher was both in a different year than him and a different house, think like the Harry Potter houses, it was difficult for Alan to find a natural way for them to meet. He found out that Christopher was at the library during the class period that his class had study period, so he would skip those to spend time in the library trying to become friends with Christopher. Later, they would have class together, and Alan would sit next to him every day, pretending it was casual and not on purpose, although Alan said that Christopher later, quote, made some of the remarks I was afraid of about the coincidence, but seemed to welcome me in a passive way. It was not long before we were doing some experiments together in chemistry, and we were continually changing our ideas on all sorts of subjects. The two of them quickly became close friends. Though Turing's romantic interests were likely not reciprocated, Christopher helped Turing be more comfortable socializing and engage more with life away from his individual studying. The two of them began to plan on going to Cambridge together. However, in 1930, before they could go to Cambridge, Christopher would die of tuberculosis, which he had contracted in childhood by drinking infected milk. Turing was completely devastated by Christopher's death. He began to write to Christopher's mother very intimate letters about how much Christopher meant to him. In his letters, he said to her, I simply worship the ground he trod on, a thing which I did not make much attempt to disguise. I should be grateful if you should find me sometime a little snapshot of Chris. I shall miss his face and the way he used to smile at me sideways. That is really, he had it really bad. He was really in love, clearly. That's heartbreaking. And talking about earlier how he would try and find where Christopher was and try and find excuses to bump into him and talk to him. Like, it just is so... Do you remember having crushes in high school where you do things like that? It's different from any other crush that you have in your life. Absolutely. Christopher's mother appreciated the letters and did send him a photograph. Turing desperately wanted to believe a part of Christopher was still around. But unable to take spiritual things on faith, 
he began to research what made up a mind, and how it could exist outside a body. Turing was still determined to go to Cambridge, wanting to fulfill the promise he made to Christopher. In Cambridge, Turing began to be appreciated by his professors. At Cambridge, he also found that there was a community of gay men who were relatively unashamed of their sexuality. While 23 years old at Cambridge, he wrote an extremely important paper on computable numbers with an application to the Entscheidungs problem, which began to touch on the idea of the computer. At the time, the words computer referred to a person who does calculations, often done by women. Turing introduced the idea of a mechanical computer. He also described the idea of a universal computer, a machine with a universal language which could compute anything using a series of zeros and ones, instead of most machines, which can only perform one specific task. His ideas would become the foundation on which every computer was built. Turing understood the long-reaching effects that his work would have. He said, quote, One day, ladies will take their computers for walks in the park and tell each other, My little computer said such a funny thing this morning. Oh, that's eerie. It, oh, I know. It's, it's <laughs> funny and cute, but it's also like, oh, wow, that's exactly the case. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, what did they say on Twitter this morning? <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. And usually, like, I feel like those types of um, predictions are so off. <laughs> like, if you ever go to, like, Epcot in Disney World, like, what even is it? <laughs> but this is on point, seriously. No, exactly. I have, I, yeah, it's, I talk to Siri and I get mad at Siri and I also sometimes laugh. <laughs> yeah. In uh, 1939, Turing turned his attention to opposing the Germans in World War II. The Germans were using something called an Enigma machine to code their messages. This is a really interesting machine, I think. I a message would be sent from one machine to the other, and if both machines were configured the same way, the message would come out clear. The problem was these messages could be configured to more than 150 trillion ways. The configuration was regularly changed. The entire German military used these Enigma machines, using them to encipher their orders. The Enigma machine code was considered unbreakable. A collection of people were recruited to work as code breakers at a place called Bletchley Park. These were men and women, mathematicians, and even crossword enthusiasts. These people were sworn to complete secrecy. Even spouses and parents could not know what the participants were doing. While at Bletchley, Turing would ride his bicycle to work wearing a gas mask to protect him from pollen and his allergies. <laughs> I really like it. just seems so eccentric. In one of the uh, documentaries I watched, another person would describe him. Sometimes he would come in, in his nice coat, and he'd open his coat, and he'd have his pajamas underneath. <laughs> and, <laughs> which I guess modern times, like maybe that's not that bizarre, but I just think it's a... Uh, it's a really funny image. Yeah. Like, he seemed maybe he had trouble making connections with people, but he just seemed sort of like an eccentric guy. Yeah. He almost seemed childlike to me, rather than, like, one of the cold geniuses that people, that are really popular to show on TV now. Do you know, I know in the movie, they kind of portray it as if he's working at Bletchley Park at the same time as the London bombings, but... Do you know if that... It's got to be the case, because it was World War II during the Blitz. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. And Bletchley Park was halfway between Oxford and Cambridge. 
So I'm guessing that must have been somewhere in the country, maybe a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. It's, but, oh, I just wanted to say the thing about the Turing machines, how they're mm-hmm. so cool. They're kind of like, you have to Google an image of them if whoever's listening. It's really interesting. And this is, it's not something, when I was researching this, it's not naturally how my brain works. So it's, it was, it was a little difficult for me to um, research and understand and then be able to translate it. It, it took me a fair amount of work, I would say. Um, but yeah, so videos and stuff, that, that definitely helped me wrap my mind around it a little bit. It's definitely funky. Yeah. All right. In 1941, while working at Bletchley, Turing became friends with a mathematician named Joan Clark. She described spending time with him and going to see movies casually. And so she said it was, quote, certainly it was a surprise to me when he said, would you consider marrying me? She agreed, and the next day he told her that he was actually attracted to men. She described being disappointed, but decided to continue with their engagement. However, Turing quickly realized that marrying her would be unfair to both of them, him leading a double life and having affairs with men, while she lost the chance to marry someone who could fully love her as a romantic partner. He called the engagement off, but they continued to be friends for the rest of his life. It's such like a mathematician thing to be like, yeah, I'll marry a gay man. Like... Sure. I, I feel like that was so common at the time for men to just like, I'll, I'll give this a try. I'll, I'll marry a woman and I'll have a normal life and I'll just, you know, get my needs met on the side. And I think it's pretty noble and brave for him to be like, this is, this is not okay for her. This is not fair for her. Because so many of these stories are actually like being resolved now with these yeah. elderly couples and these women realizing they never had the strong connection in their marriage they they're trying to think like what did I ever do wrong what what did I do that we don't have this connection and then in their 70s these men are coming out or getting discovered um and like how tragic to be married to someone for 50 years and then discover oh they were gay the whole time and I yeah. was I was their cover and I spent my whole life with this man who never fully could love me as a partner. Yeah, and, yeah, and the, this is like 1940s, and he's making a, a choice like that. Yeah, I think it's a pretty, a pretty brave decision. Absolutely. And, and just so sweet and caring. He just seems like such a nice guy. Yeah, it, it, you should, if you see it in the movie, the imitation game, for anyone listening, is, <laughs> um, <laughs> is really cute, their friendship. Like, they portray it really well. And Kira Knightley plays um, his partner, Clark. Uh, Clark, and it's it's just really cute. Um, okay, so the Bletchley Park Codebreakers specifically wanted to decipher the messages sent to U-boats, as Britain was an island and their navy was essential. And this is because they were completely embargoed and Britain was starving during the time. And so the U-boats were starving them because all the shipments of food coming from America couldn't get to them. It was basically a siege. Yeah. And Turing worked with another man, Gordon Welchman, to create a code-breaking machine they called the bomb. The bomb was able to look for the configuration of the Enigma machine much more quickly than a human could. With this machine, they could decode many of the messages, but still could not decode the even more complicated naval messages, which was crucial. They would change the code every day. So Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like in 
older stories, I remember they would break the code and you'd be good for months. You would be like, okay, now we understand as long as they don't know that we know their code, you know this information, this no, like you'd have to redo it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And what, that's what was so amazing about the approach that Turing and his group took, which was they took this um, kind of computer approach. And I mean, like early computer ideas, but like they made a machine that would be able to do it for them very quickly. And so Turing found a way to rule out large amounts of configurations allowing the bomb to just search the remaining possible ones and break the code. This changed the course of the war. For example, D-Day, the Allied invasion of Normandy, would not have been doable without Turing's code breaking. So, a huge deal. It's possible that we would have lost the war without Turing. Yeah, truly. And, like, um, so many more lives. Like, he saved millions of lives just by breaking this code. Yeah. <laughs> Every single person in the world should know his name. Really? <laughs> you know? And it's getting better, but we never learned about him in history class. Me neither. Like, we just talked about, like, the the, the hydrogen bomb and things like that. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's really interesting, um, just, like, all these different codes going to these different ships. And one of the cool parts is um, once they figure out this code... They have to be extremely secretive about it because they can't just suddenly act as if they know the code all the time. They had to let some attacks go through just so they didn't see, and they'd like it didn't seem that they knew the code. And they had it was yeah. It was imagine immense. making those decisions and being like, we can save more lives if we let these lives be lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, but they had to make up these like elaborate ways that each of these attacks or different things that they found out would. It wasn't because they broke the code. So they would have, like, um, scouting ships, like, go to a place where they already knew there were ships. To pretend they they discovered it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And they would do fake runs, too. Or they would just do, um, like, send people on fake runs just so it didn't seem like they were always getting things right. It was really elaborate. Um, That side of war is so interesting to me. Absolutely. People playing at war so that they can win a war. Even after the end of the war, the codebreakers were sworn to secrecy. Turing's importance in the Allies' victory was almost completely unknown. Even his mother didn't know what he'd done for his country, though she was proud of his accomplishments as a mathematician. I think it's pretty interesting to see, like, she thought he was the sort of professor, maybe not totally connected to the world, and she was like, he's, he's brilliant, but he's in his own little world. No, he was very connected to to the world he was saving the world yeah and for your mom never to know that you like saved the british empire (laughs) yeah like oh and i would would brag about that all the time yeah whenever she's like oh you know can't you put your laundry away like uh i'm i'm saving the world i'm busy yeah like don't you realize who i am (laughs) i am defeating nazis leave me alone (laughs) turing returned to his work in computers He designed a real machine based on his ideas from Cambridge. He began working at a computer lab in Manchester University, where he became interested in whether or not computers could be made to think artificial intelligence. In 1950, Turing published an essay about the possibility of artificial intelligence and how to tell if it exists or not. He argued that if you thought a machine was intelligent, then it likely was. It's interesting that, like, 
his uh, relationship with someone that passed away inspired this whole direction of his like scientific inquiry like, into artificial intelligence. Because so many people like to think of intelligence and the human mind as a spiritual thing, as a, oh, it's this essence given to us by God, but he clearly didn't think that. He thought it could be created and it doesn't matter if it doesn't have some unknown spirit inside of it. If you can speak to it and it can speak back to you, that's what it is. You know, it's just connections being made. Yeah. He's such a pragmatist. Yeah. Very interesting. He created the Turing test, a scenario where there are three beings, a machine, person A, and person B. Person B would communicate to both the human and the machine. If person B believes the, ma the machine is the human, then the machine is likely intelligent. It's hard to explain without a visual component. It's a, uh, yeah. if the machine and the human are both trying to convince you that they are the human and you can't tell the difference, then it's likely intelligent. And I think there are Turing tests that you can take online now where you talk to the computer or you talk to a computer or human, you're not sure, and you, you try and guess. And so these can be taken online now. It's disturbing. <laughs> yeah. um, his work on artificial intelligence brought him into the public. Many people understood intelligence as something spiritual given by God and were frightened or even insulted to see someone argue it was something that was not mystical. In fact, it could be potentially manufactured. At the same time Turing was working, he would also frequent cruising areas where he could meet other gay men. There was a large underground gay scene in Manchester, although it was carefully hidden since homosexuality in men was still illegal in Britain. Female homosexuality was not criminalized, in part because it was not believed to truly exist. Oh... Well, that's, that's a weird, um, a weird, like, yay, it's not illegal, because, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. No, I got you. <laughs> it's simultaneously, like, insulting and also probably saved a lot of people and made their lives safer. And it's interesting, like, just to think of, like, that idea, like, that perception in someone I have a uh, philosophy about um, women and men who sleep together. And if women, I think it's a good idea for straight women or women who do sleep with men to ask, ask a man like, or, or, or try and get an idea of a man. Let me start over. I think it's a good idea for women who sleep with men to ask him about what he thinks lesbian sex is and whether or not he thinks lesbians can have sex because if he doesn't understand lesbian sex, he is not good at sex. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Because so <laughs> I remember one time I met a man who asked me how two women had sex without a dildo. <laughs> and uh, I immediately knew exactly what he thought sex was. Yeah. <laughs> he thought, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you so much for saving me so much time. Um, bye. <laughs> yeah, like, like that person just humps. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that guy does not know about, I guess, ugh, I guess it, it, straight people consider most lesbian sex like foreplay and it's like a chore for them. <laughs> <laughs> it, okay. 
Uh, there's this good uh, Will and Grace quote where, um, not to go completely to uh, pop culture, but there's this <laughs> no. uh, Will and Grace quote where I think Grace says to Will, and, like, they're talking about, like, kinky sex and, like, like um, all the different ways that straight people, like, can have sex. And um, she says something to uh, Will. She's like, well, you're, you're gay. The, the kink's, like, built in. Which <laughs> is like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus! Oh, like, yeah, like every time I hold hands with my girlfriend, this is so kinky. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, what? Okay. <laughs> so forbidden, um, Jesus. Uh, but like, I don't know. I just think it's funny, like the way sex is thought of for straight people. That it's just one act, and everything else is like weird stuff you do on the side. And like, I don't know. It's so boring. No, yeah, like that shows that like there's some more stuff that needs to be learned. (laughs) There's a lot to do. (laughs) Yeah. Straight people need to uh, do some research on gay sex and get that into their own lives. Queer sex, I I mean. I hope we put that in the podcast. (laughs) I want to find a way. (laughs) In in 1952, Turing met a young 19-year-old man named Arnold Murray. Murray was unemployed, and Turing offered to buy him a meal, and then the two went to Turing's home to have sex. Turing noticed that some of his money was missing when Murray left, although Murray uh, denied stealing anything. They continued to occasionally sleep together until Turing came home one day to find his house had been burgled, and a pocket watch given to him by his father and of great emotional importance was gone. Turing accused Murray, who said it wasn't him, but it was his friend, a rent boy named Harry. Turing went to the police to report this crime. But to his surprise, the police were less interested in the burglary than in his relationship with Arnold Murray. Turing naively told them about their relationship and how he came to know who had burgled him. And I just, that part is so tragic to me because he's reporting this crime and it, he seems to just, just tell them and just not understand how big of a deal it's going to be. Yeah. Oh, that breaks my heart. Like, cause here he is like, he's. He's so modern in his, like, perceptions of different things. And so, like, he, he's, like, lived this pretty open lifestyle as a gay person before, like, the idea of being out of the closet was even a thing. Um, and and then, basically, he's convicted for it. Yeah, I think, I think it was just, like, his... So much of his life has been with people of a certain social structure and he's been in, you know, first public school, which British public schools, you know, like American private school. Um, so he's been in these boarding schools and then in Cambridge where all male schools, people sort of know about it. Maybe they turn a little bit of a blind eye. And then he's in this other small community of educated people, people who've read Greek classics. Maybe they understand a little bit more. And then now, now that he's, in this, in, in the real world, talking with people, and he just doesn't seem to understand. Not everyone turns a blind eye to it. In fact, in a lot of people's minds, it's the worst thing you could do. Ugh. Ugh. And, um, worse than burglary. Yeah, like, here he's, like, talking to the people that are supposed to be defending him, and instead they're like, no, now you're going down. Ugh. <laughs> like, I mean, like, we're laughing, but I think it's just, like, you laugh or you cry. That's, this yeah. is the first time we've recorded since the election, and where I am, there's been a lot of laugh or you'll cry situations, exactly. and I have not always been able to laugh 
Yeah, I, like everyone kept telling me how they cried when they found out, and I was like, I didn't cry. I was just extremely like worried. And uh, today I had my first cry. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and I teared so. Yeah, um, I think the first day I just thought I was going to throw up all day. Yeah. And then the day after, I I would just be doing normal things. And I'd start getting choked up. And I would cry a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it just, it's like sudden. Um, <laughs> 1952, Turing was charged and convicted with gross indecency. The same thing Oscar Wilde was convicted of in 1895. Since he was a respected scientist and the story was considered scandalous, it became widely known. Turing had a choice of punishment. He could either go to jail or he could be chemically castrated. He chose to stay out of jail. He was most likely given still bostrol, which mimicked estrogen. He had to take a daily dose of the medicine, which was regularly tested for, and to have injections. This began to change his body, lowering his testosterone, weakening his sex drive, beginning to grow breasts. Turing grew deeply depressed, both at the effects of the medication, as well as the way he was treated by the British government he had so loyally served. He was horrified by how quickly he could be thrown aside even after all he'd done just for his sexuality. Like, that is... Can you imagine, like, someone going on um, hormones, like, not, um, without consent, like, being forced to go on hormones? Like, that's... No, it's it's so monstrous. It's, uh, it's, it's almost a creative form of torture. Yeah. It's horrifying. And for me, this strengthens the argument for transgendered rights because... It's transgendered rights in reverse, almost like people being forced to live in the body that they that is wrong for them, and yeah. have the hormones that are wrong for them, and being denied the ones that are correct. And th- thinking of it this way, I think um, maybe it would help cis people appreciate the difficulty. Absolutely. He continued his work, studying mathematical patterns throughout all of this in nature, such as the stripes of a zebra or the spots of a cheetah, and create a formula that describes how these patterns were created. It's pretty, like, he can just move from computer science to biology. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Turing traveled to mainland Europe, often to Norway, where he would spend time in the gay scenes that were less dangerous than Britain's. While in Norway, which he visited when his friend gave him a tip about men-only dances, Turing met a man, Kjells, who he invited to visit him in England. When Kjells came, the British police, who were watching Turing, tried to capture him, but he escaped. The Cold War was beginning, and the government was now afraid of the confidential knowledge Turing had. The fact that he was homosexual made him even more of a security risk, in their opinion, since he may not be loyal to the government that had treated him so terribly. He could be subject to blackmail by the Soviets and was often associating with foreigners. Turing began to feel cornered. Ooh. In 1953, Turing was no longer required to take the synthetic estrogen. It was expected that his body and hormones would return to normal. But Turing was horrified to find that he didn't. In June of 1954, Turing was found dead in his home by his housekeeper. It was concluded that he had committed suicide using cyanide poisoning. 
and a partially eaten apple was found by his bed. He was 41 when he died. His mother believed it was an accidental poisoning, saying he was often careless with his experiments. And there are some rumors he was murdered, but they're unsubstantiated. There's likely the motivation on the behalf of the government concerning the information that he had. Yeah, I, I can see how those rumors came about. Just he's less dangerous if he is not around. Although, I think suicide is likely. The British government officially apologized for their treatment of Alan Turing in 2009. And in 2016, the British government officially pardoned all the gay and bisexual men convicted of now defunct sexual offenses using what is now called the Turing Law. Many were pardoned after death. Thank you for listening to the Queer History Podcast. You can find us at Twitter at at Queer History Pod, P-O-D, or on Tumblr at QueerHistoryPodcast.tumblr.com. Music by Liv Slingerland. We'll see you next time. I know you're not concerned. Hey, hey, what you say?